Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. safe space in a world full of Avengers Infinity War spoilers. It's episode 211 of the Down and Nerdy podcast. I'm James Witham. I say that because our spoiler-filled review of Avengers Infinity War isn't even coming until next week. So, I mean, you can just listen to the show, not have to worry about the movie being spoiled for you or anything. That's what I'm here for. Not only that, we actually have somebody that's been a little bit of a part of the Marvel Universe on the show this week, Nikolai Nikolaev, who's who, of course, played Vladimir in Season 1 of Daredevil. He's got some new stuff coming out as well. We're going to talk about Season 2 of the OA. It's going to be coming up later this year and a couple of other new things. A lot of really interesting stuff that Nikolai's got going on, so we'll talk to him about that. Plus, you know we're going to talk about the Venom trailer. I'll get to that a little bit later on. But first, a couple of new comics to talk about. It's what we're reading. On the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Julie Nathanson from Far Cry 5, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Pull out the long box, the tablet, or the laptop, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and it's time to revisit a book that we'd reviewed not too long ago. Sonic the Hedgehog, this time issue 4 from IDW Publishing, of course written by Ian Flynn. Evan Stanley on the art, Matt Herms on the colors, and Corey Breen on the letters. Another amazing cover by Tyson Hess. And the reason I've decided to review this this week is because we get a look at Tangle the Lemur, finally, of course, was the new character that was going to be introduced in the series, and Sonic is still on his quest to find out what's going on with the Badniks and who's controlling these robots. So he ends up in Tangle's hometown. Now, I'm not going to give away a whole lot here, but I am going to talk about at least my initial impressions of the character of Tangled Lemur, because, I mean, first of all, this series is fun anyway. This just, the whole comic just gives you this sense of it's going to be a fun read, it's going to be action-packed, and that is very, very much continued in this issue as we find Tangle sort of taking care of business in her own hometown, taking care of these robots. Now, we do know from previous you know reports that came out about the book that, that Tangle's power was definitely going to be in her tail. And I can say that there are a lot of unique uses for this tail and, and a couple that really came in handy, especially towards the end of the issue when they were trying to find out uh, what was going on with the ship that was above the hometown as well. So, now, I could tell you, she probably can handle it on her own because it looked like she was doing a pretty good job. But teaming up with Sonic was definitely something that was very cool to see. Definitely made things easier. And, I mean, the robots are really no match for Sonic anyway. But when Sonic gets help, like from Lemur, there's from Tangle, excuse me. And there was one other very familiar face that we see that kind of helps them out as well. I'm not going to spoil that because I want uh, Sonic fans who haven't read the issue yet to go ahead and figure that out on their own. But... What we do get to see is T- Tangle's very, you know, she. you can tell she's very green. You can tell that, you know, she's not really used to being around other heroes because she kind of fangirls a couple times and she's kind of really in awe of what can be done by Sonic and this other character 
that show up in this book as well. So I actually like that. It's almost like you've got a rookie hero who needs to learn what it's like to be a hero. She's clearly got some good abilities, but at the same time, she needs to figure out how to be her own hero, how to kind of forward what she's already doing. Maybe she doesn't even see herself as a hero because it doesn't seem like she really does. She's just doing what she needs to do for her hometown. Now, the the town's almost in shambles. So clearly she definitely needed some help, even though it looked like she was kind of holding her own. So we don't really get to see anybody else from her town or anything like that. But again, this this book just had such a ton of action, and Tangle fits in perfectly with the fun vibe of this book. And I'm really hoping we get to see more of her in, in future issues as we go on. It's almost like Sonic is forming sort of a team, or at least a team of people that he knows he can trust as he goes to find out what's going on. And it's just the just the way that Sonic has been written in this series so far, where he's got that kind of chip on his shoulder sort of thing, and and there's and he's just you know it's almost like he's not taking it seriously, but he is. But at the same time, I think that that's really cool. He's got this kind of conf- overconfidence almost going on that I think actually works in a very interesting way. Now, if you've seen this issue, if you've read it, again, you know I'm not going to spoil anything, but. There's something that's revealed at the end. You know, like when you're watching one of the uh, DC TV shows, and you've got the little, you know, like the little teaser at the end, right before, you know, right before the credits roll, where you get that one last scene. Well, we get a one last scene for this Sonic comic this week, and it should be really no surprise what the reveal is. But at the same time, it it really really makes you go, oh, you just, oh, I can't believe it kind of thing in a good way if you're a Sonic fan. Let me put it that way. It's not something that frustrated me at all, but at the same time, it's like, you've got to be kidding me sort of thing. So I thought it was a great reveal. I actually kind of expected it, but it doesn't necessarily tell you or confirm anything. Let me just put it that way. I'm really trying not to spoil it. You might know who it is already if you haven't read the book, but uh, let me just say this. It's something that will, if it's not exactly what you think it is, it'll be very interesting to find out how this is going to go in future issues. This is still a pull for me. I'm really loving this Sonic series, and I hope that it continues to be as fun and as action-packed every week as it has been so far, because it's just this book is unapologetically fun, and I love it for that. The new Sherlock Holmes series has just hit the shelves as well. This one's going to be from Dynamite Comics. It's Sherlock Holmes' The Vanishing Man, number one, written by Liam Moore and John Repian, and Julius Ota on the illustrations, Ellie Wright on the colors, Simon Bolin on the letters, and John Cassidy and Jose Villarubia on the cover. Now, this is set in 1887. So that should kind of give you an idea of the age of Sherlock Holmes and, you know, really sets the tone for what we're doing here. And it basically centers around a man who is basically an office clerk. Okay. And he's gone missing for some reason. And we don't know exactly why he's missing. I mean, you kind of get an idea of who he is in the beginning of the book and what he's doing, but you don't understand exactly why he's important yet. And then you see Sherlock Holmes, and Sherlock Holmes in this book, actually, kind of a douchebag. Gonna be honest, he's really kind of a douche. But then, you know, you everybody's got this idea of who they think Sherlock Holmes really is, right? But then, if you're steeped in any of the stories, you, you also know that he was a very 
complex human being himself, and he wasn't a perfect person either. So you've got to keep that in mind as well, is that this wasn't this shining hero all the time. Sherlock Holmes certainly had his own personal demons, and they are dealt with in this book. And he and Watson don't always get along either. But at the same time, in this, in the beginning of the story, Sherlock Holmes is bored. Basically, he's like, I, I, you know, I've taken all these simple cases. They're not worthy of my time. So I need to find something that is because it's, it's tearing me apart sort of thing. So they're going through the possibilities. And then we see the clerk's wife show up at Sherlock Holmes's office. And he's trying to decide whether or not, or not he wants to take that case. So in the initial investigation of what's going on, he goes to this gentleman's place of employment. And then the employer actually throws another case at him that certainly is full of intrigue and we get the backstory and what's going on there and certainly something that would take Sherlock Holmes's interest. But at the same time, it's just not that simple for Sherlock, is it? Because he's going to read between the lines of what's going on and the decision that he makes at the end of the book, I think was a very interesting one because what you're talking about here is that Sherlock is thinking this through and he knows that there's more to this than there appears on the surface and I think he realizes what was going on and it's it's a very interesting story I will say that it's there's certainly plenty of intrigue there and I do like that but at the same time I mean you don't get a whole lot revealed there is one character that if you're a Sherlock Holmes fan you will recognize the name when he says it and it'll sort of make sense as to who's behind everything, or at least at least who's kind of pulling the strings and who is going to be the thorn in Sherlock Holmes' side at some point. But at the same time, you don't really get a whole lot. I didn't expect a whole lot from our first issue of a Sherlock Holmes series anyway, because you're not gonna you're not gonna spoil everything right in the beginning. But I think the characters were written incredibly well. I think the art in this book was really, really solid. It, it certainly kept in with the times that were going. It was it's not, you know, knock your socks off amazing art don't get me wrong but I don't think it really needed to be based on the setting that you have and also the time period you have to you sort of have to keep within the times right and I think that that's what the art for the series really does this book didn't grab me right off the bat but I'm I'm still very very intrigued as to what's going to be going on. So I'll give this a couple more issues to see how I feel about it. So I'll give this a pickup for now. This could easily end up being a pull. This could be a series I end up loving. But I want to read at least one more issue before I make up my mind on that. That's going to do it for this week on what we're reading up next. Going to talk about for the very first time on the show. Going to talk about the 100 in the season 5 premiere. And another new Netflix series as well. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey guys, this is Chloe Bennett from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's one of the shows you've asked us to talk about and we are going to write that wrong right now. Time for my spoiler-filled review of the Season 5 premiere of The 100. And I know that this is a show that we probably should have been talking about from the beginning. It's It's extremely well done. From start to finish the show. But I will say that, again, there's going to be some spoilers here. I'm not going to go through every little beat of the Season 5 premiere, but I feel like this was one that was really important to talk about, of course, because the death wave happened in the in the last episode of Season 4, and we saw Bellamy and his group going up to and docking to, the, to, that, to that space station. And then, of course, we see Clark, who, of course, is played by Eliza Taylor, kind of left behind. Here's the deal. The season five premiere 
is very, very Clark heavy. There's a lot of Clark stuff in here, and it actually picks up 42 days after the death wave hits Earth. Now, I will say this, and this is just because I've never talked about this show, this show on our show before. If I'm starting a team almost of any kind, okay, it doesn't even matter what it's for. I want Clark Griffin on my team. She To say that she's a badass isn't really enough, and I'm not even really sure it, it does the character justice. She She's emotional, but she's also a badass. And she's also just... Her will and her spirit to just get the job done and to survive is absolutely unbelievable. She's such a complex and amazing character that she embodies anything you would want in a team leader. I mean, I'm not just talking about a team member. I'm talking about a team leader. This is the, you know, you hear this metaphor in sports all the time where you want that player that will put the team on their back and just will them to victory, right? Clark Griffin is that character in every sense of the word. I mean, everything that she's lost or at least feels like she's lost comes to a head in this episode. And there was one scene where she she finds a bird when she's kind of looking for you know any signs of life she finds a bird and she follows the bird to see where the bird came from because obviously stuff is living somewhere around that area she goes over the hill and it's nothing but a desert wasteland and she breaks down she kind of really really loses it and and it's incredible how in that moment she also gets that beacon of hope, right? And then, of like when it rains for the first time, it was just—it was so amazing watching her, for lack of a better term, tale of survival, and how she just isn't willing to give up even in the darkest of times. So, so Eliza Taylor is just so incredible in this episode. If you've seen any other episodes of the One Hundred before, I mean, she's good anyway. But this episode, really, Eliza Taylor was just so fantastic. And then, of course, we see her meet up with, she finds, you know, her first signs of life. Well, the, first of all, there was that heartbreaking scene where she comes up to that encampment after she finds the green area and just sees bodies everywhere. It was such a heartbreaking scene, how the radiation just kind of took over, even though the death wave skipped over this little part of the world it's the radiation didn't and that was a line from the from the show as well and there's just bodies everywhere but then she finds a live body for lack of a better term in Maddie who of course we had young Maddie and then we have older Maddie which was played by Lola Flannery and it, they didn't get off to the best of starts because Maddie attacks her in the first one and and then she's got to again fight for her own survival and imagine that you finally find a living person and the first thing that they do is attack you, right? But then, you know, Clark uses her art to kind of, you know, show her that she's friendly. She tries everything to to show that she's friendly, but, I mean, take it from a young Maddie's perspective. I mean, she had to be, what, I don't know, like eight or nine when she encounters Clark for the first time? How is she supposed to feel? Because she hasn't seen a person in forever either, I'm sure. So, now, we don't really get Maddie's story at all in this episode, but what we do get is a flash forward in time to six years later. So six years after the death wave and Maddie's grown up and Clark is almost like the de facto mom to Maddie at this point. 
and you see them kind of making a life for themselves. But then you also see Maddie bring up how she's sorry that her friends left her behind and all these things. It's just a very touching relationship between Clark and Maddie. And then we get to see a little bit of the crew that's going on up in space, which of course is Bellamy's group. And I mean, at first it seems real. It seems like everything's a okay, right? You know, they're just up there, but then you see that a lot of heat is on Raven, right? Because apparently Raven was supposed to be the one that figures out how they can get back down to earth. And it just seems like the communications aren't working. Nothing seems to be working. And Raven's taking it kind of hard. And you see some chinks in the armor of Bellamy a little bit, which I thought was very interesting because usually he was a lot like Clark, right? Where he was the steadfast leader. Nothing really bothered him. He was the one that would kind of lift up everyone else around him. But you see him start to break a little bit. And he hasn't lost nearly as much as Clark has. But at the same time, you know, he thought it was only going to take them five years to get back. And now they're going on year six, and, and nothing really seems to be changing. And you see, you know, they're having a lot of fun. You know, Monty's having fun. He can't cook this green stuff, which is, really looks disgusting. I got to tell you, I probably wouldn't last five minutes up there because I could not eat that green stuff that Monty was making. But you see the team really kind of at odds at one point, too. And, and, one, of the, and one of them says, I can't remember which one off the top of my head, says, you know, even if we don't all like each other, this is kind of the cards that were dealt to be up here. So I thought that that was really interesting. And then you see John and Bellamy get into it, and John's kind of isolated himself. And you see how Echo almost seems like she's kind of isolated herself as well in a way, even though she's a little bit more with the group. John's completely cut himself off from the group. But then you see a very interesting relationship, right, between Echo and Bellamy. And she talks about how it took him three years to forgive her and it's like there's a tease there that they might actually be together now and that's really really interesting especially you know once they do get back down to earth and you kind of figure that they will right once they do get back down there this could really complicate things but then again in the midst of all the chaos they see a drop ship going down to earth and they try to hail the drop ship and then that's where everything's going to start with the I guess, antagonists for this season. And you kind of see them encounter Clark and Maddie a little bit. Not a whole lot in this first episode, but a little bit. And the the fight is definitely on in this first episode for the last patch of green. So, again, an amazing season five premiere for the 100. This is not a mistake that we will make again. I can tell you that right now. We're definitely going to be talking about the 100 more on the Down and Nerdy podcast in the future, I promise you. And hey, I feel I almost feel like I need to apologize for not talking about this show sooner, especially when I went to San Diego Comic-Con and I saw the line for the panel for the 100. I should not have doubted it for a second. So 100 fans, don't worry. We're going to be talking about the show a lot more coming up in future episodes. Really quick, I wanted to get to a new Netflix series as well. It's going to be coming out, The New Legends of Monkey, that's actually out today, April the 27th, on Netflix. And basically, it's kind of a new take on the Monkey King story, if you know anything about that story already. It it follows Tripitaka, who, well, that's not her name originally, but that's the kind of name that she takes, trying to find out how to bring the Monkey King, who is a god, back to help fight the demons that are going on in their world. Now, she ends, and this is, I saw the first four episodes early, so I'm going to kind of keep this spoiler free 
for now, so, so I don't really spoil anything beyond that. So basically she ends up for, you know, it's, it's not easy because we see at the very beginning something happens to her where she's got to go on on her own, right? And she's entrusted in something very important in finding the Monkey King and then the journey that they have to do beyond that to kind of rid their world of the demons, right? And and there and there's plenty of other gods that are that are talked about. We even see a couple in these first few episodes of the show. And then there's really a kind of a team up that goes on. Now, I will say this. I wasn't expecting this is a little bit of a spoiler, but I can't really talk about the rest of the show without talking about this. I wasn't expecting them to to I wasn't expecting her to free the Monkey King this quickly. That's the first thing I've I've got to get right off my chest right off the bat. I was not expecting that to happen, but it's very interesting because once she does, I got some serious serious Moana vibes while I was watching these first few episodes because the relationship between Tripitaka and the Monkey King is very much similar to the relationship that the main character had with Maui in Moana as well. I mean very very similar in that Especially Maui and the Monkey King's uh, kind of demeanor is very, very similar. I mean, it's not dead on, but it's very, very similar in theme. And but, but also, he's trying to remember how to use his powers because we find out that he's been gone for quite a while. So you know, a little bit rusty. But then you get to see the story kind of move forward a little bit, right? And then Tripitaka runs into a couple more. And then we see the journey sort of start to begin. Now, I will say right off the bat, too, this is very much a a teenage, preteen, I would say more preteen show. This is not for adults. I'm not saying that you can't enjoy this as an adult, but this is definitely centered around teens. And the special effects are not great. It's almost like 90s special effects. And I don't actually don't hate that because you see so many things that are bogged down with CG, right? And there's so effects can certainly be overdone a lot. The effects aren't overdone. The effects are done exactly the way they kind of need to be done. And I will say that the fight sequences in this show are actually quite good. I, I think that it's it's choreo- the fight scenes are choreographed quite well. So I again, I I don't want to say that I love this show, but I don't want to say that I don't like this show either. I'm kind of middle of the road. On this, so after seeing the first few episodes, I'm I'm definitely interested to see what's going to happen throughout the rest of the series. And I like the fact that we're talking about you know sitcom style. This is a 30 minute show, you know, like more like 22, 24 minutes because it's Netflix and there's no commercials, right? So I like the fact that this is done in short form. So we're going to get short form, uh, a lot of different episodes in a short form sort of aspect. So I think that this is something that could easily be something that is liked by preteens quite a bit, especially it's almost like a Moana slash Lord of the Rings type deal where you take the Moana thing and then you put it on a quest where you have to reach a certain point with a team. It has definitely not way more Moana vibes than Lord of the Rings vibes. The only Lord of the Ring vibes I get was the, was the actual questing part itself. Almost maybe more like Wizard of Oz than Lord of the Rings. Actually, now that I think about it, if you want to take Moana and the Wizard of Oz, except you're not going to see the wizard, you're going to try and complete a task sort of thing. That's the best way I could possibly put it. So again, not something that made me jump up and down or anything, but definitely something that I think for preteens and, and, and teens could definitely be enjoyed. So that's my thoughts 
on the new Legends of Monkey from Netflix. Of course, my thoughts on the 100 as well. Up next, some nerd news to talk about, including the Venom trailer and that word that was kind of messed up. Talk about that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book writer and co-creator of Deadpool, Fabian Niciesa, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to put on our symbiotes and get down to it because it's time for nerd news. And I kind of say that tongue-in-cheek because the first thing I want to talk about this week is the Venom trailer that, of course, was released at CinemaCon. And before I even get to the look, honestly, how much did it bother you that that's how she says it in the trailer? Because I'm seeing 50-50 from fans that were either really upset about it or didn't care at all. I'm kind of halfway there because I think it's symbiote. No matter what you say in the trailer, it's symbiote to me and it always will be. And maybe you have a different pronunciation of it, but that's just how I do it. I just think that it's funny that a lot of talk about this trailer has been about that. I mean, there's been plenty of articles written about it too from several other places. And I understand why it's getting a lot of attention, but it seems like the most attention and rightfully so is the Venom symbiote itself. Because I got to tell you, as far as look-wise, I know, you know, it's the same argument all the time about CGI. I know, I get it. Maybe you just don't like CG. Some people just don't like it. I think it looks pretty good. It's certainly way better than we had, and it's pretty terrifying. And I've seen a couple comparisons from a a couple of other different outlets to it, you know, Pennywise and it. And I think that that's almost kind of what they're going for a little bit as far as the fright factor. And it looks pretty scary. Now, I did think it was, there was one moment in the trailer that actually made me laugh. And I'm paraphrasing here. And Tom Hardy says, now I'll let you stay only if we only hurt the bad people. And I'm thinking, okay, that's, that's funny that you think you're in charge. That's cute. No, that's not how it works. So maybe it will be in this movie because they they do dub him as an anti-hero. And Venom always kind of has been, okay, not always, because I'm sure that Spider-Man would kind of disagree. But, you know, Venom has had a run as an anti-hero several times. So, I mean, it's not saying he has to go the bad guy route, even though this is his first solo movie, right? So, I mean, I like the look. I think it's going to look really, really neat. I think that it was really cool that we got to see some of Eddie Brock's, uh, Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock in this trailer as well. I like the edge that he brings to it. I like that it's almost like, you know, Tom Hardy can kind of be that gruff dude that he needed to be in this movie. I think that it shows why he was probably a perfect choice for the role. And again, we don't really get a whole lot of information other than the two looks. I mean, we know that there's something going on at this foundation. As a reporter, Eddie Brock tries to bring it to light. He gets shut down, and then somehow he ends up with the symbiote kind of thing. So we don't really know what's happening here or how things have gone about it. But, I mean, that's the way trailers should be, right? I mean, there's been a lot of criticism about the new Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom trailer that came out not too long ago. It's like, well, you've revealed everything now, so what's the point? And I understand that, and I kind of agree. So I'm glad that this trailer isn't giving away anything, but it's finally done what it's what it needed to do, and that's show us the symbiote and let Spider-Man fans know and Venom fans know, okay, yeah, we're going to do this right. But at the same time, is he going to have the Spider-Man emblem, emblem on his chest? Kind of has to, doesn't he? We, I mean, I've heard varying reports saying yes, no, maybe. Well, well, I guess we'll have to wait and see. It's not a huge deal breaker for me, but I just think he'll look better 
if he has it. Just my personal opinion. That's easily something they could add later on based on fan response on social media, too, if they really wanted to. I was getting ready to talk about everything that happened at Paramount and CinemaCon. First of all, I want to start this off by saying I'm not going to be talking about a lot of the other trailers or the footage that was shown at CinemaCon because they, it has been released online as of recording this segment. And I don't feel comfortable talking about something I didn't see myself, and I don't want to read somebody else's account of it. So when that does come out, I'll cover it on a future show. I just don't think now is the time to talk about it if I didn't see it. Now, something that did come out of Paramount CinemaCon was, and this according to Variety, that S.J. Clarkson is now going to be the first female director of a Star Trek movie. And it's going to be Star Trek 4. looks like Chris Hemsworth is going to be involved. That is not confirmed or denied by Paramount at this point. They're not commenting. It looks like it could be kind of a time travel type situation with Chris Pine. Of course, we've seen Zachary Quinto run into Leonard Nimoy in another movie, so it's not out of the realm of possibility that this could happen, right? Now, if, if the name S.J. Clarkson does sound familiar to you, I mean, she's definitely been a part of some good stuff. I mean, Dexter, Marvel's Jessica Jones. She was part of Marvel's The Defenders as well, as far as being on the production team for those. But, you know, no big-time movie roles until now. But at the same time, and I've been a big proponent of this for a while, you know, there's some good stuff out there on TV, and there's some nice, edgy stuff, and it's it's difficult. It's not like it's any more or less difficult to do a movie than it is television. There's talent out there in TV if you care to feel that way and 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 let it be so. So I think that S.J. Clarkson certainly has as, as, as good a chance as any to make Star Trek IV a success. And again, it's about time that we have a female director helming a Star Trek movie. There's been plenty of them. There's been plenty of opportunities. And, you know, let's see what kind of perspective that she brings on this. I mean, it's not just because she's a woman, but because she's coming from TV and maybe she's going to have a little bit of a different take on the storytelling for a Star Trek movie. Maybe she'll play the long game a little bit more, which is what you can do in TV. I'm just interested to see what she's going to do and how the dynamic's going to change because I think no matter what, Paramount kind of wants to change the dynamic of the Star Trek movies. And one of the things they did announce at CinemaCon was that there were going to be several Star Trek movies. We know that the Quentin Tarantino movie is happening. J.J. Abrams mixed in there somewhere as well. So I think they're ready to mix it up. And what better way to do that than to finally get the first female director of a Star Trek movie? I think that this is a great move for them. Some other announcements that they made was World War Z 2 was going to be coming. It's kind of far removed from the first movie. I mean, no more far removed than some other sequels that are coming out. So, I mean, I can't really criticize them for that, but... So that sequel is going to be coming. The Dungeons and Dragons movie is now confirmed. Apparently there was a cool logo that was shown. They did not confirm Joe Manganiello or Brad Payton's involvement, though, which has kind of been the rumors that have been floating around there. So, I mean, Joe Manganiello seems psyched for a Dungeons and Dragons movie. I don't disagree with him. I'm kind of looking forward to it myself. But, I mean, he wants to be deeply involved in this. So why not just let him? He could certainly play many roles in a Dungeons and Dragons movie, and and he's a good name to go out there and put and attach to a movie like that. So why not just do it? And then of course you got Micronauts, which was talked about, which will be out, and it looks like 2020. And the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, they showed a logo for that. Looks like that will be out in 2019. That one seems the most risky to me. Still, I'm just still not sure how a it it's supposed to be a live action, or at least it it that was the last rumor 
was that that's what it was going to be. And I know it's probably going to be CG heavy as well. So it'll be very interested to see how that kind of shakes out. I'm not saying there aren't good stories that can be told because obviously the Sonic the Hedgehog comics are awesome and there are plenty of good Sonic stories that can be told on the screen. It's just, you just got to be careful with something like this because it could it could end up being corny and just not good and that's just how these things go sometimes. Speaking of movies that are taking a different route, you might have heard the announcement about there's going to be another Doom movie based on the video game that's going to be, that's, that's going to be coming out and after the success of the newest Doom adaptation on, on video games. It's not really that big of a surprise, but according to Screen Rant, it looks like the Doom movie might be headed straight to digital and DVD release. Now, it would be Universal Pictures that, was gonna, there's, that are going to be releasing this, and the story last week was actress Nina Bergman, who went on her social media accounts and said that she's already confirmed her involvement, she's signed on the dotted line, she's excited, and now we get this news. And before you freak out and say, well, they must not have a whole lot of faith in it, and this movie's going to be awful, yada, 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 maybe they looked at this realistically and said, look, video game movies, it's a tough, it's a tough business. They don't always turn out so well. And maybe they're not going to throw a whole lot of money into this, and maybe that's been the plan all along. So you look at something like the DC Animation Universe and everything that they're doing there, like Gotham by Gaslight, Suicide Squad, Hell to Pay that just came out. They've got the the Death of Superman that's going to be coming out not too long from now. There's been a ton of really, really good DC Animation movies that went straight to DVD and video on demand. That didn't mean they weren't good. And I don't know that this is going to be an animated movie. I'm not saying the Doom movie will be, although kind of makes sense, doesn't it? But, I mean, look, they they did a Starship Troopers movie not too long ago for Sony. That went straight to video on demand, and so did the Resident Evil movie that they did. And, again, they were animated, but still, my point being that you can do this movie, put it out on video on demand and DVD, and it could still be successful. Success isn't measured by whether or not something makes it to the big screen all the time. I mean, it's, it's obviously a better sign when something goes to the big screen and, you know, you get a bigger budget and whatnot, but do you really need a huge budget for a Doom movie other than special effects? I don't really think you do. I mean, you could do this as a gritty movie without a ton of special effects, and, you know, maybe that would actually be beneficial for a Doom movie. Kind of take it rugged and old school a little bit and make it look a little bit grimy and not have to be so CG heavy. I think you can actually realistically do that. So, I'm not sure exactly what angle they're going to take here, and I don't need a huge star to be a part of this either. I just think that this is something that, I mean, it's certainly realistic that it can be done, right? So why not just go ahead and do it? Here's something that I didn't kind of expect to hear about. According to StarWars.com, a new Star Wars animated series, Star Wars Resistance, is going to be coming to Disney XD this fall, and now it is billed as an anime style Star Wars series. Now, it's going to focus on a young pilot named Kazuda Ziono, and that's just, I butchered that name, I'm sure, but who is recruited by the Resistance for a top-secret mission to spy on the First Order. So, obviously, this is going to take place in the more recent Star Wars universe. Now, they did say that BB-8 and several other Star Wars characters will be involved in this as well, and it takes place prior 
to the Force Awakens movie. Now, there is another quote here that says that World War II, World War II was a big inspiration for this movie as well. So, I mean, I think it's a cool idea if you want to do this anime style. It's certainly something very different that Star Wars hasn't really done before. A lot of the same behind-the-scenes folks, executive producers and, and such, are involved in this that were involved in Star Wars Rebels and some that were involved in Clone Wars as well. So maybe they just want to do something a little bit different. I don't really see anime coming from Disney XD, though. I don't know how literal they're going to they're gonna take that as far as making it an anime series. I think it's a cool idea. I think Star Wars anime is a great idea if you decide to just go all in and do that. And, you know, maybe you say, well, the anime is not that different than standard animation. Well, yeah, it kind of is. And if you're going to go all in on the anime, you need to do things a little bit differently. And I am by no means an anime expert. But as, as, as someone who feels like they're inundated with Star Wars content, as I'm sure that you do, doing something to make this just a little bit different I don't think it would be the end of the world. So if they take that angle, I think that this could be really, really cool. And as far as who the other characters are going to be involved, I think you're definitely going to have, you know, Poe Dameron will probably be involved. Anybody that's that's been involved in the Resistance, I think will be involved in this. Now, is it cool to have Princess Leia involved in this? I don't necessarily think that they'll go that route. I kind of hope that they don't because I think that, you know, they, they said they wouldn't bring Carrie Fisher back in any kind of CG or anything like that in future movies. I don't think you could do that in, a, in an animated series either. So hopefully she's mentioned by name but not actually seen. Unless the blessing from the family is there, then I'm okay with it. Because as, as long as we have that, then that's all that really matters. I just hope that they really don't go that route. But either way, either way I'm interested to see exactly what we're going to be getting out of this and if it's going to be anime or not. That's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, going to talk about a ton of different shows with Nikolai Nikolaev. That's up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, listeners, this is Peter Shinkoda from Daredevil. I play Nobu, and you are listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, here's a guy that you've probably seen in a lot of stuff. I mean, we're talking Daredevil, the OA. He's going to be on 6 coming up on the History Channel Season 2. It's Nikolai Nikolaev. Buddy, how's it going? <laughs> Uh, it's going very good. I have to I have to correct you, but I, uh, Nikolai Nikolaev. I just um, see it's it's a it's a really weird name, and um, uh, you know what I get um, as with current politics it's very polarizing with how people react to it. But it's uh, either what is that? Were your parents drunk when they named you, or <laughs> that's one of the best names I've ever heard? <laughs> you know what, man? It, it wouldn't be the down and nerdy podcast if I didn't mess up somebody's name, honestly, because that's like my <laughs> trademark. So, so thank you for fill, fulfilling no that for me this week. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back a little bit, man. Let's talk about Daredevil for a minute because, I mean, at the time, it was kind of a complete unknown for Marvel fans and it really ended up being a groundbreaking show. So take us back to what it was like on the set. And Did you guys kind of know that this was going to be the start of something big? You know, when I got the audition came through, I uh, my agent said, "Can you do Russian?" And I went, "Yeah, yeah, of course I can." And um, um, uh, I, you know, Daredevil, the 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 first movie that came out, I remember going, um. Okay, but but I think um, with with the way TV was going, you know, with with Game of Thrones and these like really cool, complex, amazing kind of uh, story, you know, series, I, I I did know we were part of something special, and um, they wouldn't release too many of the scripts to me. Um, in fact, they they just did the 
my audition pieces originally, um, and then and then they only gave me my uh, one and episode one and four, um, and and very early on, I mean, when I finished episode one, I went, dude, like this is insane. This is this is yeah. You, you, if the skeleton is awesome, you 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 know you're already halfway there. And then they didn't disappoint. I mean, I every script that I got. I couldn't kind of, I, I didn't think they could outdo the first one. And um, uh, and they just kept going and going and going. And so it was a real honor to be part of that show. And yeah, I think we did know that we we're being, um, uh, you know, brought on to be part of something very special. Now, your, your character, Vladimir, actually got to team up with Daredevil at one point. Now, how fun was it to kind of play both sides on the show and then go down in a blaze of glory? An honor, an honor. Like, Charlie and I got along like a house on fire. And that episode in the tunnels, uh, we, we really bonded. Um, and we're, we're still friends even to this day. I, I like to, um, you know, there's, there's, it's an interesting thing about that point in the series because you never see him die. <laughs> very so true, very true. It's, it's a very interesting, um, yeah, yeah. Look, Joe Quesada, he's, um, put it this way, they've got, they're, they're the Marvel Universe is very vast, and um, um, they are thinking of multiple things at any one time. So, um, you know, and it, it's a comic book property. So, as we all know in comic books, some people might not necessarily be gone. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You never know. Speaking uh, man, of what which, a tease I am. I'm sorry. Speaking of which, you'd kind of go on to be a part of the OA on Netflix shortly after that. So, what was your first impression when you heard about the premise of that show? At the rap party, right, uh, I was talking to the Netflix reps, and they're like, look, Nico, no one's ever seen anything like this on TV. And in my head, I, I kind of thought, yeah, look, I'm sure everyone says that, you know, about their show. But when, when we finally saw it and the complexity that Zell and Brit have come up with, uh, it, it truly is, you know, onto its own. It's, uh, it's, just, it's just a... Um, an amazing film, basically. It's an eight-hour film. That's how they were thinking about it all along, and and a true honor to me uh, to be part of it and to play such a mysterious character. I know a lot of people um, don't quite even recognize me, you know, because he's he's a mm -hmm. bit older. And uh, but they all they all remember the the Russian father and and especially what happens to the the daughter in it, um, you know, with the um, horrific uh, crash and um, yeah. And, and so look, many questions. Uh, not not all is as it seems. Um, and it, it's a very uh, interesting project to be part of. What was cool was that your character Rona was actually part Roman, excuse me, was actually part of the first flashback, flashbacks on the show in the first season. And there's some really great scenes with him and his young daughter Nina. So do you think that he was kind of aware and how special she really was, especially considering that scene you were just talking about? No, I, I, I don't. I think I think he was. He just had a, a lot of love for his daughter. They they had gone through like like the the story of what happened to her mother is is an interesting thing, and um, it's never really mentioned uh, apart from a huge painting that's uh, on this uh, above a, um, a fireplace. Uh, look, I, I played it as he just he just loves his daughter and treats her. You know, wants her to um, have the strength. You know, and grooms her to be a strong uh, woman and. Uh, I don't. I don't know if he saw how uh, if she had any special talents, but he he definitely wanted to toughen her up, and hence the um, brutal, you know, kind of. Um, I'm going to teach you how to swim, you know. Now we we touched on this a couple minutes ago. I kind of want to go back to it because there was a very, there was a line in the very first episode, and that line was, "We died more times than I could count." Now that was from, of course, Prairie. So. The show kind of deals a lot with near-death experiences and even other dimensions entirely. So 
How much can you tell us, if anything, about Roman's involvement in season two, despite what we might know about him this past season? You know what? I I can't say anything, my friend. <laughs> and I'm very uh, I'm very sorry. I know I sounded like a bit of a douchebag. Uh, we've got a little I can't talk about it. But um, um, the again, they they're expanding their um, you know to 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 take from the Marvel guys. They're expanding their universe, and um, uh, it's a very rich tapestry that they're weaving. And Roman, um, again, Roman is a very mysterious character, and they are bringing in a whole bunch of new elements. Um, and as well as as much loved old ones um, that the audience has, has already fallen in love with, so yeah, I, I, look, all I know is that they've got um, they've got many chapters uh, in store for people. Sometimes saying nothing, Nikolai is saying everything. So I think that that, that <laughs> kind of tells us enough that we, what we need to know. <laughs> Speaking, uh, speaking of second seasons, my friend, I mean, you're playing a big role in History Channel Series 6. Now, your character in the trailer for the series is described, quote, as the head of the snake. So how would you describe your character? The head of the snake, yeah. Look, when I got the, uh, the audition briefs, they wrote um, the, uh, what is it, the mastermind of, of the, uh, the empire. And, um, he, he, yeah, look, he, he starts with helping, you know, um, the CIA. And being on the same side, and then then we see the uh, the unraveling of that relationship through through kind of um, miscommunication, basically, and and um, deception, but but not but not um, not on purpose, you know. And um, and so these unfortunate events happen that transpire, and then he, you know he kind of loses everything he has. And so we see a guy plummet um, and 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 you know become a monster, basically, um, and. Um, but also, you know, a monster for who? You know, um, uh, that's the thing about this show. It kind of, it's not afraid to ask uh, the tough questions and kind of make the audience go, well, you know, w- what is a bad guy and who is a bad guy? What does it mean to be a bad guy? Uh, and I say bad guy very loosely, you know, like mm-hmm. Walton Goggins' character in the first episode, you know, uh, celebrated seal what you would traditionally go, hey, we're the good, you know, a good guy. I mean, um, he sets the tone in the first episode, in the first, you know, kind of opening scene, pretty much, of the first episode. And I think that's why a lot of people have reacted to the show in, a, in, a, in an interesting way. That they, they, they expect, you know, yee-haw, you know, kind of superheroes. Right, right. But these guys are all real, you know, and they're dealing with some, some, some fucked up shit. Uh, and it's traumatic, and they they go down dark rabbit holes as well. Um, and, you know, it, it's shining a light in some very uncomfortable areas. Um, and so that's why I think uh, the show has been so celebrated as well, because because of how complex it is. And, um, yeah. And so when I was pre- preparing for the character, I went down some really dark rabbit holes because, you know, uh, I'm watching... Um, my character was born in Chechnya and then raised... Uh, he he um, moved to Bosnia uh, to fight there in the in the 90s. And... Um, he meets his, his amazing wife. You know, as, as we know, terrible, terrible things have happened in that in that part of the world. And so, researching that um, and immersing myself in all the atrocities that happened, it kind of messes around with you. I've always been good at kind of what I call tools down. You know, like at the end of the day, you you shed, you shake off whatever totally, you're doing yeah. uh, to to go back to reality and have a normal life. You know, and uh, I know some actors don't do that. They they immerse themselves so much that they almost become the person. But, I mean, when you're playing someone like this who has had the most god-awful experiences in his life and then mm, 
through that has to, is doing really bad things as well to other people. Yeah, you, you have to be really careful, and uh, if you don't look after yourself, um, uh, you can become I don't know, you can become a different person. And so my wife kind of caught me out for the first couple of months, going, "Look, you're you're not sleeping well. You're tossing and turning. You're you're, you're really grinding your teeth mm-hmm. <laughs> because of this stuff." And um, yeah, it took me it took me about two and a half months to to then shed a lot of the baggage that I was carrying and uh, and then and then I kind of was able to really enjoy myself and um um I was looking forward to to you know doing a good job and then but wrapping up my time um with that um you know calling it a day and and just you know I'm I'm excited to see what's what we created and I think the audience is in for something very special Absolutely now Nikolai before I let you go man you've been pretty fortunate to play a lot of different roles over the years from Daredevil you were even part of the Power Rangers at one point so is there a particular <laughs> character or a fandom that you'd really love to be a part of at some point Oh uh, look I'd be lying if I if I didn't say uh, something like Star Wars would would um, I mean that would be amazing to to be part of that uh, universe as well. I just want to tell great stories and and recently I was on a film called Mile Twenty Two um, and to be able to be a that's coming out in uh, in August I believe which is <laughs> buckle up <laughs> is all I can say. Nice. Um, being part of a group of people, right? Like a mechanism. We're all cogs in it, you know, and, uh, and we're all turning to make this, this thing kind of work. Um, being able to like suggest ideas, you know, uh, and, um, kind of have a bit of a voice, you know, not in an arrogant way. It's just like, Hey, you know, uh, I, I've been doing this character and I've been, you know, immersing myself in it for, for a long time. And what about if we did this, you know, and, and like having people look at you and go, Oh Yeah. Oh, yeah, let's 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 try it. Let's how about we do it? And um, um, you know, do one like you know for safety, I guess, and make sure you've got it, like 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 it's written. But then maybe having the the privilege of playing and and trying it a different way, where, whether it succeeds or fails, just to be able to do that, it's it's just it's an amazing kind of um, uh, yeah privilege, I guess. And so I just want to be on more sets like that where we can dance and and collaborate and uh, bounce stuff off each other and um yeah I see a lot of the families that are created in in shows like you know you got um there's no shortage of, of film directors that work with the same kind of you know bunch of people um and Peter Berg and Mark Wahlberg is is a great, great example of that they they've collaborated together multiple times and so um to be able to be stepping into that like a, a mini family and um uh, find your footing and and uh, and you know to be able to dance with them is really cool. I um I'm just really happy and very excited uh, where I am in life at the moment. Well, Nikolai's right. Mile 22 with Mark Wahlberg and company is going to be coming out in theaters on August the third. You can also see him in season two of Six, beginning on May the 28th. That's on the History Channel. And then if that wasn't enough, the OA returns for his second season in December of this year as well. Nikolai, thank you so much for joining me this week, man. James. Thank you so much for having me, man. I'm loving your work. A lot of fun talking to Nikolai Nikolaev about all the great shows that he's been in. And he's a that guy, isn't he? It's one of those things where you've probably seen him in so many things. And then when, you, when you're when you talking about him, you're like, oh, he's that guy. I loved him in this, that, and the other thing. And that's who Nikolai has been in a lot of stuff. But what I think is really cool is in the History Channel Series 6 for Season 2 that's going to be coming out at the end of May... I think that you're really going to get to see him in a spotlight where he's going to be the big bad in the series, it looks like, this season. So, going to get a chance to see a lot of him. And maybe, hey, season two of the OA, a lot of cryptic stuff there. It seems like he might be a lot bigger part of that series 
than we might know so far. So I have to keep our eyes on that as well. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Nikolai Nikolaya for joining me this week. Find out more about other interviews that we've done at downandnerdypodcast.com. All our past episodes are there. You can also follow us on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram and facebook.com slash downandnerdy as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.